0: there and welcome. I'm Cleanna producer of the RT Radio 1 Davis Now Lectures. The University of the People, 2002 Thomas Davis series, marked the 100th anniversary of the first Carnegie Libraries in Ireland. The lecture here was recorded before an audience in Blanchardstown Public Library in Dublin when Declan Kybert spoke about how writers as diverse as Catherine Cookson and Frank O'Connor started their love of books in public libraries. He also talks about controversies in the Irish library system in the early years of the Irish state, when, for example, Lennox Robinson was fired from his position as secretary and treasurer of the Carnegie Trust in Ireland because of a short story he had written. County librarians such as Dermot Foley and Clare lamented the fact that the censorship mentality of the local library committees meant that an Irish stew of sloppy romances and important westerns, as he wrote, made up the literary diet of library users. One library even locked up the works of John Donne, only giving them out to users, deemed to be mature enough to read them. Here is Declan Kybert.
1: I hope it's all right if I start with a short story. Um, in England, in the last century, there lived a woman named Catherine MacMullen. And she was the daughter of a washerwoman who had been in the workhouse for a very long time. One day she heard a friend in the washhouse refer to a romantic tale and she plucked up the courage to go to our local library to check out the reference. What she found was the letters of Lord Chesterfield to his son, and this began her lifelong romance with books. And from Chesterfield, she went on to devour the poetry of John Donne, Edward Gibbon on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and eventually James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Her debt to the local library was well returned, because under the name of Catherine Cookson, She went on to write 90 popular novels, being at one point responsible for one-third of all the books borrowed from Britain's public libraries. The first public library legislation was enacted in 1850 for Britain and in 1853 here in Ireland. Yet before those momentous dates, libraries existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. And these were, of course, special collections like the fabled one in Alexandria, but they were held in special buildings for privileged groups of learned or wealthy men. By the middle of the 19th century, however, there was a growing demand for books from the newly literate masses, and their numbers were growing in every decade. When Charles Trevelyan travelled by steamer to the Indian port of Commer Cali, he was astounded by the native boys who boarded his boat because he'd expected them to ask for food or for alms. But what he heard from each boy was the same line over and over again, Give me any book. All I want is a book. And I would say that today the descendants of those bright boys are probably asking their public authorities in India for increased access to the internet. Now, everybody knows that discourse and knowledge are the powers which must be seized and that the battles of the future are always rehearsed in the libraries of the present. The very idea of an approved canon of English literature was itself invented out in India in the 1830s in the attempt to wean local children away from their own culture. There's a famous minute logged in 1837 by Lord Macaulay in which he stated with supercilious imperial complacency that a single shelf of a good European library was worth the whole native literature of India and Arabia. Now, it's in that context that here in Ireland, nationalist leaders like Thomas Davis propounded the whole ideal on which not just this lecture series but the system of public libraries is actually based. Educate that you may be free. The inventors of modern Irish democracy, from the young Irelanders, through Michael Davitt, down to people like George Russell and W.B. Yeats, were all upholders of the reading room ideal. They believed that these places would raise consciousness, that they would promote debate, that they would lead to a raise publica in the fullest sense. They wouldn't have subscribed, I think, at least some of them wouldn't, to the old enrage maxim of my student days when we used to be told a night on the barricades is worth 10 years in any library. (laughs) Um, Because at least some of the figures I've named found those two activities complementary. And it's true, in fact, that at the height of the War of Independence, a guerrilla leader like Michael Collins made good use of the public libraries, not just as sources of valuable information, but also as venues for his undercover operations. It is to Thomas Carlyle that we owe the whole notion of a public lending library because he got frustrated by all the noise in the British Museum in the 1840s and by the fact that the books couldn't be brought home. And so he founded the London Library which became the prototype of the central library of our modern cities and county towns. Even before the Carnegie Libraries were founded in Ireland in 1902 the debate was well and truly underway as to what should be the essential hundred volumes in any village library. I think that whenever a century turns, people project their anxieties onto symbolic dates, and they delight, of course, in compiling lists. So on the 20th of January, 1900, George Russell, the mystic poet, painter, and agricultural organiser, published his own hot hundred recommendations in the Irish homestead, and these included Mitchell's jail journal biographies of Owen Roe O'Neill and Patrick Sarsfield, Celtic sagas, but also Plutarch, the history of Mexico, the life of Dr. Johnson, Scott's famous novel Waverley, and a whole rake of volumes on farm equipment, crop rotation, poultry keeping, and so on. In 1903, the publisher Gill and Son, correctly sensing that this new movement could provide a boost for sales of Irish published books, went on the offensive with a volume called Public Libraries for Ireland. And this was a multi-authored work which dealt with the organisation and layout of library buildings, with book selection committees and so on. Now, all of the contributors supported the ideal. Newsrooms and libraries, said Dr. Lister of the National Library, were a civilising influence for the tired labourer or artisan. And a letter seeking support for a library in Sligo Regrets, and I quote, that spirit of progress there is of slow development. And it suggests that the presence of books on popular mechanics might stimulate economic thought and industrial development. Another contributor suggested that the practice of regular reading, I quote, will introduce and maintain order and quietness and help to prevent drinking and gambling. Now, the publisher Michael Gill was himself a patriot at a time when most Irish authors dreamed of having their books published by a London outlet. He was all for building up the native publishing industry so that the writers could express the new nation to itself rather than exploiting its colourful characters for the amusement of overseas readers. And so he praised the new system of public libraries as a way of promoting books of value dealing with Irish subjects. But even in those early idealistic days, the national movement began to split along the lines of social class. There's a fascinating article in On Laurlin, the journal of Common Laurlin, in June 1905. It's an article called The Child in the Library, in which one Peter White complains bitterly that monies being spent to finance the Land Acts, transferring ever more property to strong farmers, would be better invested to help young children advance their knowledge of reading in schools and in libraries. He says, Why the children of the very poor should be thus plundered? To benefit an already wealthy class is un- inconceivable, cannot be defended upon any grounds, and indirectly means ultimate loss to this nation. Because the poorer the mind equipment of the people, the less capable will they be of contributing their wealth to their country. And among the patrons and founders of that association, the Ireland, were Douglas Hyde, Sean T. O'Kelly and Patrick Pierce. Now, a lot of people who used public libraries in their early decades of existence were what would have been called in those far-off times the deserving poor, labourers, artisans, working women, whose education began and often ended in the primary school. They were, in a sense, autodidacts, intent on self-improvement, and their tastes were actually quite conservative. They loved Charles Dickens, they loved Daniel Defoe, Walter Scott, among the English writers. They liked Charles Kickham, Tom Moore and Oliver Goldsmith among the Irish. And I think in time, this began to cause frustration among the more advanced radical intellectuals who had pioneered the public library movement, because the writings of Annie M. P. Smithson or Walter Macken or even Catherine Cookson proved far more popular with the readers than the writings of, say, Kate O'Brien, James Joyce, or Virginia Woolf. The taste of the autodidact might run as far as Bernard Shaw or G.K. Chesterton, but never quite as far as James Connolly or Tyhard de Chardin. And there would be plenty of modernist Marxist intellectuals who would in time throw up their hands in horror at the determinately middle-brow tastes of the new reading masses, who often seemed not just middle-brow, but in the time-honoured Irish phrase, killed with respectability. (laughs) And I think it's against that background that you have to study the controversies which flared around the Irish library system in the early years of the independent state. In 1924 the Carnegie system was being extended from city boroughs into rural communities and one member of its board, Lennox Robinson, wrote a short story called The Madonna of Sleave about a young country girl who imagined herself another Virgin Mary. A Jesuit priest resigned from the advisory committee which was suspended even though it included such intellectual heavyweights as Augusta Gregory and George Russell. And Robinson himself was fired from his position as its secretary and treasurer. We all know what happened after that, literary censorship in 1929, prompting Oliver St. John Gogarty to lament this gross misuse of a national liberty so recently won. He said, now the Irish were emulating the worst aspects of English provincialism and English censorship, and he went on, they are filling every village and hamlet with little literary pimps who will be recognised. The consequence for a librarian like Dermot Foley in Ennis County Clare was terrible. The whole direction, he said, of the Irish literary revival was being thrown into reverse. Thereafter, he complained, books were tainted and it was left to the censorship board to expose libraries as seedbeds of corruption. So that now every two-bit prude or bigot could fancy himself or herself a moral policeman. In one library in the 1940s, the poetry of John Donne was locked away in a special case, along with other books of dubious moral value, available on request but only to readers of proven maturity of mind. (laughs) A decade earlier, in the 1930s, a famous incident occurred when a Mayo Library committee refused to ratify the appointment of a Protestant woman graduate of Trinity to the position of county librarian. The great Republican Eamon de Valera saw nothing wrong in this, Librarians, he said, were not passive checkers out of books. They were active shapers of the public mind. And he went on, In a country where I think over 98% of the population is Catholic, the people are justified in insisting on a Catholic librarian. (laughs) This really was a dark moment. But at least the remaining librarians could have consoled themselves with the underlying suggestion that they were possessed of real intellectual influence and power, even if the power was of a subversive kind. Through all those years, the numbers and the size of libraries grew, with the Carnegie Trusts taken over by local county councils in 1925. But what also grew was the tendency to control and curtail librarians, many of whom were radical intellectuals like Frank O'Connor or Dermot Foley, intent on giving meaning to the notion of an Irish free state. Foley's case in County Clare was indicative He went there after a short apprenticeship with Frank O'Connor in the Pembroke Library in Dublin, and he was anxious to promote a new imaginative freedom to match the liberty of a newly independent Ireland. But what he encountered instead was a panel of spiritual vigilantes who would vet all books before they could be placed in the library. Uh, These people were, he scoffed, a ragbag of 52 upright citizens capable of spotting dirt at 100 yards. (laughs) And even the local priest actually found their lists of unsuitable books ridiculous. He dryly recommended acceptance of one volume concerning male criminals in a penal settlement in Australia on the grounds that there was, quote, not one female within a hundred miles of it. <laughs> Dermot Foley got very bitter about the levels of interference. He said no Irish writer ever encountered that level of censorship. No writer had ever been prevented from writing. They lost income, maybe. They lost readers at home through the censorship, but not the ultimate liberty of self-expression. The real losers, Foley said, were the poor people of Clare, who couldn't get their hands on good writing before it was banned or screened by the 52 (coughs) vigilantes. My library was whipped into serving up an Irish stew of imported Westerns, sloppy romances, and blood and murders, he complained. Now, this is, of course, the same clear landscape in which the young Edna O'Brien grew to maturity. And she recalled that when a clandestine copy of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca entered her parish, it was actually torn into separate sections, which were passed like Samizdash underground literature (laughs) among the parishioners with the result that no two members of the parish read quite the same novel in exactly the same (laughs) sequence. Apart from the moral vigilantes, the other great antagonist of many a librarian was the local schoolteacher. Dermot Foley later conceded that it was a mistake for librarians to imagine that they could provide what only a good formal education can give, a true cultivation of soul and mind among ordinary citizens and not just among the gifted few. The library supplies books, the teacher trains minds to exploit their use, he admitted. But he added jocosely, I was trying to do both. But of course, enthusiasts never stop for explanations. Now, of course, he was right to try and do both. All the best librarians do a lot more than check out books, whether it's organizing debates, poetry readings, art performances, or whatever. But the problem which he came up against was perhaps predictable. A schools inspector from the Department of Education in Marlborough Street reported to his superiors on the high standard of English in Clare schools, but he, quote, refused to believe that it had been achieved by the reading of library books like With Clive in India and other examples of imperialistic storytelling. The public taxes paid for the libraries, so everyone felt entitled to have a strong opinion on how well or badly the cash was being spent. By 1946, one and sixpence was spent for every citizen in Dublin on the libraries, as opposed to five shillings per head in welfare state Manchester. In the early decades after independence, some librarians tried to promote a de-anglicisation policy, especially in the children's library section, where, for instance, the American Bobsey twins were promoted and proved very popular over the claims of their British counterparts. But inevitably, the actual tastes of children for Blyton and Bunter eventually prevailed, I began using the children's library in Charleville Mall in the late 1950s, and I was soon amazed at the number of comments pencilled in by the moral vigilantes, besides some harmless passage or other, even in the children's books. A lot of very, very weird people in those days seemed to function as self-appointed committees of one in the public library buildings. Meanwhile, the librarians themselves, as had been reported by Roisin Walsh in On Unlarlin of September 1946, We're becoming perturbed by the very frivolous tastes of so many readers for trivial fiction and trashy romance. But she was unfazed. She said fiction was the lifeblood of all literature, and even frivolous stories about Irish characters would, if preserved in the libraries, become valuable points of reference decades later for future historians who'd be seeking some sense of what ordinary life had been like in the earlier period. But of course, this didn't cover quite all the cases. That seemingly endless series of novels about doctors, nurses and barmaids, which streamed in almost weekly from Britain. And so popular did these become that even in cities like Dublin, which was pretty well equipped with public libraries, you could join small Argosy libraries for two pence a week in many a tobacconist's shop and feed a habit that even the public libraries wouldn't fully cater for. And it was really only with the onset of television in the 1960s that these Argosy libraries began to be killed off. And I'm sure the people who once read those books about nurses and barmaids are now watching ER and Coronation Street. (laughs) Some people attributed this taste for trash to the debilitating effects of a censorship board which had allowed little but trash in. A whole generation had had its mind closed to the higher possibilities of literature, or so the argument went. The trouble with that argument is it is too neat by half. People who like reading of one kind will often be the ones who read any kind of book, and those who produced high literature often turned out on inspection to be quite fond of trash themselves. James Joyce was a great lover of trash, as befitted a man who submitted his earliest writings to the firm of Mills and Boone, (laughs) and was refused. (laughs) The Nobel Prize winner, W.B. Yeats, loved nothing better before bed than a good cowboy tale, and he unnerved his young English wife by shouting out during a particularly vivid dream, don't shoot the sheriff, please don't shoot the sheriff. <laughs> and famously, Flann O'Brien in At Swim Two Birds chose to emphasise the continuity between the stories of the cowboys at the Circle N Ranch in Ring's End with those other sagas of classic cattle rustling known as the Fineacht and the Toyn. Looking back from the liberal vantage point of 1976 on these depressing earlier decades, Dermot Foley noted the progress of those decades, much of it due to his own work as the director of the Library Council. Corle Lauralina managed to convince the Minister for Local Government that local councils alone couldn't provide capital necessary for library development, with the result that central funds were allocated towards the cost of new buildings, to expanded book stocks and to mobile library vans, and so on. But equally important, the Minister for Education voted funds to subsidise a classroom library in each primary school. And this, Foley said, was a sharp contrast to the dark time when the local library had been put out of bounds by school principals fearful of their lives because reading by choice would quote-unquote interfere with the school course. Now, those liberal 1970s seem to me, at this moment, very far away because since then, a just but very brutal points system has taken hold of secondary education, whose schools never did get the allocation for library facilities given to the primary sector, or certainly to nothing like that degree. The pressure placed on students by the secondary points system is so pervasive that many have less and less time available in which to read for pleasure. Usage of libraries by these falls away in the later teens, and this is a very sad state of affairs. Those of us who were lucky enough to use libraries in our teenage years will never forget the excitement of discovering a new writer or an unfamiliar subject. Thomas McCarthy, for instance, has recalled with fondness the day the librarian in Capa Quinn placed in his hands a copy of Richard Murphy's Sailing to an Island, thereby launching another poetic career. Today's bright 18-year-olds often score amazingly high points in the leaving Cert, and yet then seem confused and undecided about career choice. Now, that kind of choice is never easy, of course, but what makes it harder is the point system, which has forced so many students to read only for examination marks and not for pleasure. I'm reminded of the great African novelist Chinua Achebe, who wrote that wonderful novel, Things Fall Apart. He once got a letter from a 17-year-old Nigerian boy. Mr. Achebe, I salute you. Your book, Things Fall Apart, is the finest book I ever read. There is only one thing wrong with it. You supplied no model questions and answers at the end of the text. (laughs) The vitality of any national literature depends on large numbers of people reading without any goal other than the pleasure of the activity itself. The importance of pleasure as an index of civility has been all but lost in our technocratic society, which manages to turn even play and sex into work and to see education as a matter of passing tests rather than cultivating individuals. Many people today who score high points in the leaving are pointed inexorably towards university study of a technical or financial discipline, or else to the lucrative, high-status professions. Only in later years do some feel the need to explore other repressed aspects of their own personalities. And this explains, I think, the vast numbers which take extramural courses or night classes in everything from Russian literature to creative writing. The role of the library has changed accordingly. With new era schemes for college education aimed at mature students from disadvantaged areas, The old tradition of autodidacts using libraries in order to make good the gaps in their education doesn't quite hold in the same way. And with the wide availability of Poundsworth classics and Penguin classics, even people of modest means can gather the rudiments of a decent library in their own houses. But the library still exists to meet the need of those who might want to read a little poetry after perhaps a whole decade since they gave it up with their Leaving Cert course or it could service the night student who wants to research an essay on the writers of Irish Gothic, or it could help a person who wants to study the inner workings of the engine of a Toyota Corolla. The beauty of its structure is that it caters for all these needs at once, so that the person who comes with a question on motor mechanics may go home with a novel by John McGahern. In the words of F. Mark Murakoo, who was Waterford County librarian, libraries are the regional Mental Clearinghouse for Ideas, the People's University, the indispensable coordinating centre for all forms of adult education. But there are also, I think, social reasons for sustaining and developing our libraries. We live at a time when many churches are locked for fear of vandals, when bouncers stand in the doorway of many a city pub at evening time. The public library is one of the few civic spaces which still offers an equal, unconditional welcome to each member of the community. Nobody challenges you when you go in. Nobody tells you what to do. People who still feel shy about walking into banks have no compunction about walking into libraries. And once you're in there you can read a book, you can sit and savour the blend of sociability and silence. Old people often go to libraries to keep warm and to meet friends. Young people from noisy homes often use them to study. Others go there to borrow the latest Booker winner. But to all of them the library is a kind of friend. And even the most regular users aren't always aware of the services on offer, that you can't just borrow videos and cassettes. You can also find in libraries books that have long gone out of print, that you won't get in any shop in town. You can get books on interlibrary loan. And the library often publishes lists of upcoming events in a local area. In some of them, budding poets exchange pages. In more again, people with literacy problems are equipped with that priceless gift. Now, apart from the checking out of books, none of these activities is really quantifiable. It's not the kind that enters a sociological survey or report. But I think there's a strong case for treating the library as the central building in most modern communities, in the sense that it is the one building in which now the community can still identify itself as such. In other countries, like the United States of America, town halls often serve that function, and they still do. And in Ireland, the local church was, by tradition, a kind of weekly meeting house. It gave neutral ground on which, say, aspiring politicians or charity activists could walk and speak after a morning service. But nowadays, with the decline in religious practice and a worrying degree of social atomisation in most places, the library can sometimes offer the one social space that is respected and accepted by everyone. And that's why, in recent years, libraries have shown a desire to use the space, as one in which the community could debate its own meaning, its own ultimate destiny. For example, after the controversy sparked off by Roddy Doyle's television series Family, Ballymun Library hosted a debate between the author and his critics, and the police turned up, perhaps suspecting a repeat of the Playboy riots, only to be told by Roddy Doyle that they wouldn't be needed, and the exchanges were extremely civil. In Mayo, there's also been a lively debate in the Library about public policy on the Irish language. I think that the ancient Irish love of the word, which is just as strong as ever, is based on the conviction that there is a link between a word and an action, that a word really is, in fact, an action, and that there's a link between the vibrancy of artistic debate and the psychic health of a society. Now, although libraries have updated themselves with modern technology, I think the written word will always be the central part of their concerns. The notion that the internet or the word processor may herald a decline in people's taste for narrative is, I think, wrong. After all, there was a time when the new print technology and its attendant form, the novel, when these were both castigated by conservatives as symptoms of social decline of a Philistine technology which was threatening cultural value. But technologies are all neutral, and in many ways the latest advances in word processing and in cheap book production have made possible many volumes of local interest which now adorn local libraries. So I would say there is no necessary clash between literature and the world of modern technology. In fact, I would say the reverse. The library is the place where the two are about to be reconciled. Thanks very much.
0: That was Declan Kybert and his talk relating to libraries from the 2002 RT Radio Thomas Davis Lecture Series the University of the People, which marked the 100th anniversary of the first Carnegie Libraries in Ireland. The producer was Bernadette Comerford and its consulting editor was Nora McDermott. Go to the Davis Now Lectures website for more information on rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Davis Now Lectures and find further Davis Now Lectures where you get your podcasts. From me, producer Cleon and the Anlun, thank you for listening.